This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 269. So today is Sunday, August 14th, 2022, and I am talking about the news and rumor stories that caught my eye this past week. First up, how Chris Burkhardt shot Iceland's latest volcanic eruption for Nat Geo. On the ground in what has become a very active volcanic area, photographer Chris Burkhardt explains what it was like photographing for National Geographic as Iceland experienced its second volcanic eruption in as many years. On August 3rd, a second massive outburst of lava emerged in Iceland near the area that saw huge activity last year. This time, however, the eruption is significantly more powerful. In a detailed story on the eruption, National Geographic says this strongly suggests that the country's Rekjes Peninsula will become one of the most volcanically dynamic parts of the planet for several generations. And I apologize if I mispronounced that. That story includes several incredible photos captured by travel and adventure photographer Chris Burkhardt. Speaking to Petapixel, Burkhardt explains what it was like to be on the ground amongst the impressive geological event. Shooting this eruption is unlike anything else I have ever shot, mostly because of how rare and fleeting it is. Shooting an active volcano is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and knowing that it could end at any moment really changes the way things feel, he says. Quote, it has made me feel like I'm documenting a historical event compared to many of my other shoots, which are shooting surf or outdoor activities or commercial projects. I think this makes the images feel a lot more significant to me. Of course, there are challenges from lots of unknowns like when it will end and where you can be and how close you can get to the heat, but every shoot brings its own challenges. To me, what makes this stick out is its historical feel. When the eruption started, Burkhardt happened to be in the right place at the right time. Quote, somehow I just happened to be in Iceland for the eruptions that occurred both this year and last year. I traveled to Iceland as much as I can and spend a lot of time in the country. I usually come over here for photo projects and leave some time in between them or after them to just enjoy being here, he says. It worked out perfectly, and I was here with all of my camera gear and an open schedule when the Maradalar eruption started. It feels like a gift for the timing to work out this way, and I wasted no time in trying to be shooting it as quickly as possible. My vision for capturing the images mostly revolves around just trying to document the event as it unfolds, as it is ever-changing and unpredictable, which makes it all more fun. All of Burkhardt's photos of the event were captured on a Sony Alpha 1 with either a 16-35 or a 24-70-millimeter lens. His aerial photos were captured with the DJI Mavic 3. 
Quote, I actually didn't have my usual full kit of gear with me when the eruption started, but I had enough to make it work and wasted no time worrying about what I had and didn't have. Shooting on the ground with my camera is a great way to shoot the up-close details of the volcano and the lava, as well as to document the more intimate experience of humans interacting with nature and the eruption, he says. Quote, shooting with the drone is a great way to show the whole picture, to show what the phenomenon looks like from afar and how big it really is. It also unlocks a whole new perspective, being able to shoot from the sky and a variety of angles that you can't shoot on the ground with a camera, such as looking straight down on the volcano from above. Shooting it with the drone has been really key for showing the whole scene and documenting the area. I think pairing of both is the ultimate combination as you can paint the entire picture for both the natural event as well as humans experiencing it. As is the case with most shoots, photographing the eruption came with its own unique set of challenges. Burkhardt says that in this case, understanding what was safe and what wasn't was the biggest challenge, specifically when it came to where he could stand. Quote, there are places that are safe to stand and shoot from and places that are not. There are times when it is safe to go close and when it isn't. The air quality changes and can be hazardous, so just navigating the safety protocols is key, he explains. Quote, I would say it has been easier to capture this in a way that fits my vision than other works I've done. I say this because for many shoots I do there is all sorts of planning and producing, and it takes a long time to get things the way I want them. With the eruption, you just have to shoot. There isn't much time to worry about this or that, and there is certainly no planning or producing. It is just embracing my creativity in the impressive display of nature. It is difficult, but it's also really fun to just get into a flow state and document everything going on without time to waste worrying about this or that. Bookard says the, the chance to shoot for National Geographic is an opportunity that he and probably most outdoor adventure photographers dream about. Quote, it is one of the most prestigious magazines in the world, and getting to shoot for National Geographic is an honor. Knowing my work meets their high standards and will be widely circulated to people around the world makes me feel quite grateful. My ultimate goal in my career is to help people appreciate our planet and the outdoors, and I think National Geographic does that on a huge scale, he says. For more on this story, including additional photos from Burkhardt, make sure to visit National Geographic's website. And my hat is off to you, Chris. Congratulations on being in the right place at the right time to document this massive volcanic eruption. And I can imagine the challenges that you probably faced. Now, like Burkhart, I have been lucky enough to be published by Nat Geo on one of their textbooks. If you remember, I've shared the story before on my show that I have the cover of their 2015 Big Cats textbook. And so it's not quite the same, but I understand where he's coming from. I've shot wildlife for many years as one of the genres that I like to do mostly for myself. And it was very, it was a very big honor, I should say, to have National Geographic buy my image to use on the cover of their book. So I can definitely understand where he's coming from there.
Photographer shares her client's wildest editing requests. Working photographers will get crazy Photoshop requests from time to time, and it appears that Megan Kelly gets more than most after achieving fame for her video series, quote, things people have asked me to edit. In the outrageous series, Kelly details requests such as take out my ex-boyfriend, add in my dead grandparents, make me skinnier, remove all the people from the tourist spot, etc. But the portrait and wedding photographer tells Petapixel that nothing phases her anymore. Quote, I understand what it's like to have something small that bothers you in an image, and everyone has different things they are self-conscious about. And I have the skills to help them, Kelly says. However, it's not all fun and games. Most requests that Kelly has received have been because of a serious incident. Quote, I had a bride who asked me to edit out one of the groomsmen and all the images from the wedding as he had sexually assaulted her sister the day before. Quote, the edits were really tricky and intricate since he tried to be the center of attention a lot, but I managed to get him out. I didn't post this, of course. I don't post unless I have permission, and things like this are really sensitive for people, even if the editing is interesting. COVID Creativity Kelly started the series during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic after experiencing a slow season with people staying at home, so she decided to try out a new social media platform called TikTok. Quote, I wanted to post something that was different than everyone else, something that would stand out. I tried thinking about what people thought was cool and about my photography, and I actually remembered that most people would just sit over my shoulder in awe as they watched me edit, explains Kelly. Quote, people have done it for years and always said how fast I was and how good I was. I mean, I don't really get it. It's just me editing. But I knew it was different than others, so I tried posting about edits that I do that most photographers don't. And it quickly got a million views. So I kept going, recording and posting random things that I edit while running through my photos. Kelly thinks that not only is, enterta- not only is entertaining for people to watch, but it also enlightened the layperson that not everything they see can be believed. Quote, it's also opened up some chances for people to send me images of theirs to edit if they run into something tricky. It takes up so much of my time that I might have to stop doing that, but I really try to answer everyone's messages, even though it's hundreds of them every time I post a video about things people ask me to edit. Kelly, based near Salt Lake City, has been shooting weddings and portraits for 10 years and wants people to know that it's perfectly okay to be a photographer that doesn't do these types of edits. Ethics and editing. Quote, there are always those people who feel and comment on TikTok that editing images is wrong or isn't even a picture anymore, or it's fake or not authentic. My husband put it in a beautiful way. He loves my epic style and editing tricks because it makes the images you make feel how you did during the shoot. I want them to look at the images and feel that happiness and adventure and bliss from our session and their time with their loved ones, not look at the image and see a bunch of tourists in the back or that their dress is scrunched up or their hair is a bunch of flyaways. 
Most of my edits are actually minor, and I never change people to look totally different than who they are. I just remove the minor things that might distract them from that feeling. That emotional connection to the session. For more of Kelly's work, you can visit her website, TikTok, and Instagram. And I must say, looking through the story, she has done some incredible edits to satisfy her clients. But I don't think I would go that far. But hey, if you got the talent and people are willing to pay for it, why not? Celebrated nature photographer dies after falling from a cliff. Nate Jung, a well-respected nature photographer, has been found dead after falling from a cliff in Hawaii while out hiking. Tributes have flooded in for the naturalist on social media who is passionate about documenting and preserving Hawaii. Search organizers say Jung went for a hike on Sunday but never came home, reports the SF Gate. He was last seen at the Waramano Valley Ridge trailhead at around 8, wearing a maroon shirt and green cap. His car was later found by Honolulu police officers at nearby Pearl City High School, authorities say. A large group of volunteers assembled to look for the popular photographer. One member of the search party spotted Jung at the base of a cliff, and his body was there lifted out at 11 on Sunday. Natalia Hosey Burdick, chief of staff at the Hawaii, at Hawaii State House of Representatives, shared the news on Facebook after being part of the search for Yin. Quote, we did find him this morning, but he was already gone. Deepest mahalos to everyone who shared the call to action, Hussey Burdick writes. Hundreds of people across the islands show up for him in the same way he would have done for you. Nate showed up for everything. No matter what the issue was, he was always there fighting for the Aina land, the Y, or W-A-I, water, and every living thing on this planet. Jung's Facebook and Instagram are festooned with colorful pictures showing stunning plants, landscapes, and lagoons from Hawaii. He also captured amazing images of the birth of a Hawaiian monk seal pup, writing a supporting article as well. Jung's last Facebook post featured a photograph of the sunrise over a tide pool at Makaipuai, which had hundreds of tributes underneath. Quote, your beautiful images have brightened my day and deepened my love and appreciation for Anya for many years. Mahalo for that. Rest in peace, Nate, writes Brett Jones. While Jennifer Hussong added, I had nothing but respect and admiration for Nate Young, Akama, smart, Pano, necessary, and an amazing photographer. What a loss to so many communities. His family has said that for now, the best way to honor Young is to volunteer or donate to the Sierra Club, Oahu Search and Rescue, or any other cause that the photographer supported. Only yesterday, Petapixel reported on another tragic death of a photographer in Florida when a dune collapsed on him. And my heart does go out to Nate's family and friends. It's always sad to hear about a photographer who dies doing what they love to do best. And I hope he didn't suffer a whole lot after the fall. Hubble photographs the gorgeous colors of the Orion Nebula. While the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, has dominated headlines, the Hubble Space Telescope shouldn't be forgotten. The legendary observatory recently captured this gorgeous photo that showcases the colors of the Orion Nebula. 
described as a celestial cloudscape, this region of the Orion Nebula, surrounded by the Herbig halo object, HH505. Herbig Haro objects are bright patches of nebula that are associated with newborn stars and are formed when jets of partially ionized gas are ejected by those new stars and collide with the nearby gases of cl- uh, clouds of gas and dust. Quote, Herbig Haro objects are luminous regions surrounding newborn stars that form when stellar winds or jets of gas spew from these infant stars, creating shock waves that collide with nearby gas and dust at high rates of speed, the European Space Agency explains. Quote, in the case of HH505, these outflows originate from the star uh, 9ORI, which lies on the outskirts of the Orion Nebula around 1,000 light years from the Earth. The outflows themselves are visible as gracefully curving structures at the top and bottom of this image. Their interaction with a large-scale flow of gas and dust from the core of the nebula distorts them in sinuous curves. The photo above was captured with Hubble's advanced camera for surveys, ACS, by scientists who are studying the region, specifically looking at the properties of outflows and protoplanetary disks, NASA explains. The space agency says the scientists study this region of space because the Orion Nebula is full of intense ultraviolet radiation that emanates from young stars. Hubble, in particular, is well-suited to study this because of its sensitivity to that wavelength of light. Quote, the Orion Nebula is a dynamic region of dust and gas where thousands of stars are forming. It is the closest region of massive star formation to Earth, making it one of the most scrutinized areas of the night sky and often a target for Hubble, the ESA uh, says. Quote, this observation was also part of a spellbinding Hubble mosaic of the Orion Nebula, which combined 520 ACS images in five different colors to create the sharpest view ever taken of this region of space. Nebulas are some of the most beautiful celestial subjects that both Hubble and JWST photograph. One of JWST's first photos was of the Carina Nebula, which showcased some incredible detail and proved to be the most popular of the new telescope's first images, thanks to its stunning colors. And this is an absolutely amazing image that Hubble captured of the Orion Nebula, and I highly suggest that my listeners stop by the show notes, click on the article, and check out this beautiful image for yourself. Now, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. All right. So continuing today's episode. 
Rumor from Canon Rumors, the next full-frame RF mount camera will be a replacement for the Canon EOS R. The next RF mount camera the Canon will release will be APS-C, but we can also expect a new full-frame RF mount camera in the next, next six months or so. The new camera will be a replacement of sorts for the original Canon EOS R, but it won't be called the EOS R Mark II. The new full-frame camera will sit below the R6, but will not be a new version of the current EOS RP. We think the rising costs in the supply chain may have delayed or nixed the rumored 899 full-frame R-series camera. We have been told that the new camera could be announced in late 2022 or in early 2023, with a ship date coming in Q1 of 2023. Now, we have seen some rumored specifications, but we aren't confident in your accuracy, so we'll hold off on that for now until we are more certain. So, definitely an interesting story, and it would not surprise me that Canon comes out with a replacement for the R soon. After all, that camera has been on the market for a considerable amount of time, and I don't believe Canon will do an EOS R Mark II, because as I've said before many times on this show, the R and the RP were strictly bridge bodies to get Canon's feet into the full-frame mirrorless market and get their toes wet, so to speak. Next up, Lexar announces the Gold Series CF Express Type A cards, the world's fastest. From San Jose, USA, August 9th, 2022, Lexar, a leading brand of flash memory solutions, is excited to announce the new Lexar Professional CF Express Type A card, Gold Series, and Lexar Professional CF Express Type A slash SD card reader. With superior performance and read speeds of up to 900 megabits per second, write speeds of up to 800 megabits per second, and minimum write speed of 700 megabits per second, the Lexar CF Express Type A card gold series is for for professional creators who want to capture high-resolution images and cinema-quality 8K video with ease. As with video performance grade 400 VPG 400, this ensures stable video recording at a minimum of 400 megabits per second, giving creators peace of mind so that they never miss a frame. Now, these new memory cards will be available in Amazon and Adorama. For photographers and videographers who demand superior performance with transfer speeds of up to 900 megabits per second read, transfer speeds of 900 megabits per second, 800 megabits per second write, and minimum write speeds of 700 megabits per second. Smooth and high-speed capture of high-quality images in 8K and 4K video. Rated video performance guarantee 400 or VPG 400. Large capacity option up to 160 gigabytes. The card readers designed for use with Lexar Professional CF Express Type A and SD UHS-2 memory cards. High-speed USB 10 gigabits per second, USB 3.2 Gen 2, transfer speeds with USB Type-C, CF Express Type-A memory card transfer speeds of up to 900 megabits per second. On the UHS-2 SD side, memory card transfer speed at up to 312 megabits per second. Includes 2-in-1 USB Type-C and USB Type-A cable, compact and portable design for photographers and videographers on the go. Available in capacities of up to 160 gigabytes, capture more high-quality images and cinema-quality 8K video without needing to constantly swap cards. 
The Lexar Professional CF Express Type A Card Gold Series will also feature a rugged design providing the durability you need to protect from temperature, shock, and vibration. It is also backed by a lifetime limited warranty. Coupled with the new Lexar Professional CF Express Type A slash SD card reader, experience simultaneous high-speed transfers of CF Express Type A and SD UHS-2 memory cards with high-speed 10 gigabit per second USB 3.2 Gen 2 transfer speeds. Featuring a lightweight metal design, users can fit the reader into their pocket or bag with ease to transfer data on the go. With a complete workflow solution for capturing and transferring content on the go, content creators can streamline their workflow from field to post-production with ease. Quote, we are excited to announce the Lexar Professional CF Express Type A Card Gold Series with industry-leading performance and GP400 uh, VPG 400 rating, professionals can capture cinema quality video with confidence so they never miss a frame, said Joel uh, Bokerin, general manager of Lexar. Quote, paired with the new high-speed 10 gigabit per second Lexar CF Express Type A slash SD card reader, creators are able to establish an efficient workflow when transferring content from the field to post-production. The Lexar Professional CF Express Type A Gold Card Series and the Card Reader is available now for purchase online in an MSRP of $199 for 80 gigs and $399 for 160 gigs. And as I mentioned at the top of the story, available at Amazon and Adorama. Nikon Rumors email subscription no longer available. Looking for our alternatives. The Nikon Rumors email subscription is no longer available. Google decided to kill the service called FeedBurner. I've been using this for 15 years. While I am looking for an alternative solution, you can follow the latest Nikon Rumors blog posts on Facebook, Twitter, and the RSS feed. I assume at some point Google will also kill the FeedBurner RSS feed, so it could be a good idea to switch now to the default HTTPS slash slash NikonRumors.com slash feed. Nikon Rumors can also be found on Instagram, YouTube, Flickr, and Pinterest, but I'm not as active on those channels. So just food for thought, folks. Next up, the Nikon Z7 listed as discontinued in Japan. The Nikon Z7 camera is now listed as discontinued or old product on the official Nikon Japanese website, direct link to the product listing. This camera was released on September 28th of 2018. The Nikon Z7, however, is not yet listed in the discontinued section of Nikon Japan's website. A quick check in the U.S. shows that the Nikon Z7 is currently in stock at Adorama B&H and Paul's Photo. Update, it seems that several Nikon Z6 configurations are also now listed as discontinued. So if you're interested in either one of those early Nikon mirrorless cameras, now would be the time to pull the trigger. But unless your budget's really constrained, I would rather you go with the Z6 or 7 Mark IIs because they're much better cameras. Next up, Fujifilm USA celebrates World Photography Day with meetups in New York, Los Angeles, and Austin, Texas on August 19th. 2022, you can join for free now. To celebrate World Photography Day, Fujifilm will be hosting meetups in New York City, Los Angeles, California, and Austin, Texas on August 19th from 1 to 5 p.m. 
You'll meet up in a bar and then go for photo walks, shooting with models. There will also be snacks and more. The event is hosted by official Fujifilm creators and local retailers, for example, B&H Photo for the New York City event. The event is free and you can book your spot now at the link in this article in the show notes. I wish to every Fuji Rumors reader who joins any of the events a super fun and nice day. Note, Fujifilm creators are on stage two of the new Fujifilm USA ex-photographer program. How you can become a creator and an ex-photographer in the USA is explained in detail with the accompanying link. And one thing I must throw in is I've applied multiple times to become an official Fujifilm creator and ex-photographer, and I've never heard back from them. I've submitted my application multiple times, and they just keep blowing me off for whatever reason. So in New York, you can meet at Vig Bar, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, 12 Spring Street, New York, New York, 10012. The website is vigbar.com. In Los Angeles, All Seasons Brewing from 1 to 5 p.m. PST, 800 South La Brea, Los Angeles, California. Or you can go to allseasonbrewing.com. In Austin, The Luster of Pearl, 1 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, 114 Linden Street, Austin, Texas, 78702. And the website is www.dunlapaxt.com. Lustre Pearl East. And you can find all of this information in this article in today's show notes as well. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. And for those of you that are able to go, I hope you have a great one. And please share your amazing images. You can always stop by the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group and share them in there. Or tag the podcast on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. I would love to see your images. Japanese Fujifilm manager, quote, long debate if to go full frame or medium format, and the Fujifilm X-T1 saved the X-Series. Japanese Fujifilm manager, Mr. Takashi Ueno, released an interview to Map Camera on YouTube. It's all in Japanese, but the guys over at DC Life provided a summary of it, which I will share down below. This is from Patrick at Fuji Rumors. The Fujifilm X-T1 was the first camera to put Fujifilm's future stake, and luckily, it sold very strong. Without the Fujifilm X-T1, the manager would not have made this interview today, meaning Fujifilm would not have continued the X-Series if the X-T1 had failed. Fujifilm deliberately chose not to go full frame. It's not that by doubling the mounts, Fujifilm would have also doubled their R&D resources. The resources remained the same. For those who wanted larger sensors, it was not good for Fujifilm to tell those customers to look for other brands. Customers who liked the Fujifilm colors and concept. So Fujifilm decided to add the GFX system for them. There was a long internal discussion if they should go full frame or medium format. Now a note from Patrick, Fuji Rumors has the true internal story on the moment that convinced Fujifilm to go medium format in a related article. The X-Series will continue to evolve. Quote, all camera products are the same, but the functions of cameras today are completely different from what they were 10 years ago. And I think the expectations people have for cameras are changing rapidly. On the other hand, I don't think it's a good thing to stay the same without changing, and I want to keep the basics in mind, but I want to evolve by properly grasping the needs of users. 
The X-T series is one camera that more than any other camera combined dominate or determines Fujifilm's success in future. This is why the Fujifilm X-T5 will be crucial. These were just bullet points, and I also share the full Google translated part for you below. Now, I'm not going to read all of that. You can also watch the video, which is in Japanese. If you are fluent in that language or just want to watch it, you can find it in that article in the show notes. Now, the related story I did want to share, the true internal story of when Fujifilm decided to go GFX. So I'm going to share that with you now. This is the true story, the meeting and test that convinced Fujifilm to go medium format. It all started with a secret meeting. Today, I would like to share with you an insight story about the probably decisive moment that convinced Fujifilm to go from medium, go to medium format. Now, this is from 2017. I've been told this story back in mid-2015 by a trusted source while chatting on Skype soon after my first medium format rumor. Today, I got an email from the very same source who told me that I'm free to share the story with all of you guys, and I'm happy to do that right now. For this story, we have to go back in time to 2014. Imagine the scene. A confidential meeting amongst the most important people at Fujifilm. The big question in the room, should we go medium format? At that time, Fujifilm was looking closely at the medium format Pentax 645Z. The camera sold better than Pentax ever expected, and many reviews praised it. The camera store TV said back in 2014 about the Pentax 645Z that it is the best image quality for stills they had ever seen. But the camera store TV also made a final and important remark the newest full-frame sensors, like the one on the Nikon D810, could narrow the image quality gap between full-frame and medium format. So was it worth it for Fujifilm to go medium format? Then came the decisive test. Fujifilm decided to make a test that would help them decide if medium format would have a future or not. And it was as simple as that... Fujifilm took a raw file of the medium format Pentax 645Z and processed it using their unique ImageX processing engine. And guess what? The image quality Fujifilm got out of the Pentax raw file was already superior to the original Pentax image simply by applying their own image processing algorithm. This realization laid the foundation for Fujifilm's decision to go medium format. But... That alone was not enough. Fujifilm wanted more. A better processing engine just wasn't going to be enough for Fujifilm to pull the trigger on GFX. They also decided to make some hardware-related tweaks to the medium format sensor. So they customized the micro lenses in front of the sensor and optimized the silicon process. This will allow Fujifilm to improve the overall image quality even more. At the end of the day, Fujifilm's magic trinity of processor customized medium format sensor and GF lenses will very likely raise quite a bit the bar for medium format 33 by 44 millimeter sensors, and the gap to full frame should be more significant once again. But to be sure of that, we have to wait and see how that GFX beast performs in real life. 
and it's not a long wait anymore. January 19th is just around the corner, and I'm ready for the live blogging. So this is the true story behind the scenes that convinced Fujifilm to go medium format. And very soon, a few years after that test, the Fujifilm GFX was finally reality. So there you have it. The true story behind the decision to go medium format right from Fujifilm themselves. Next up, new tech art LMEA9 reviews pre-orders now open at Amazon US and EU as well as B&H Photo. You can now pre-order the new TechArt LMEA9 autofocus adapter at B&H Photo, Amazon, Amazon DE, Amazon UK, Amazon France, Italy, Amazon Spain, and Amazon the Netherlands. Here's the full review from Fred Miranda. Quote, I'm impressed with the improvements in aesthetics and functionality. I consider it to be a step above the previous version in terms of durability as well. No more wobble. It looks like TechArt fixed most of the gripes I had with their previous adapter, and it's now more reliable, quieter, and even more enjoyable to use, although it's still not perfect. If you have a Sony body and want to add AF to your manual focus lenses, I highly recommend the new LMEA9 adapter. And there are also a couple of accompanying YouTube videos that you can check out as well. So definitely sounds like Tech art is going in the right direction with their version two of this lens adapter. And last up for this week, first real world images of the upcoming Tamron 50 to 400 millimeter FE lens. Japanese YouTubers already had the chance to play with the new 50 to 400 F45 to 63 DI3 VC VXD, now listed at BH. That is under development. Here are two images of the real lens that you can check out for yourself in this article in the show notes. And there are four YouTube hands-on videos that are auto-translated text to understand what they are saying. And you can check those out for yourself as well. And that is going to wrap the news and rumors stories that I found intriguing for this week and decided to share with you, my audience. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap episode 269 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. I also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook or the Liam Photography uh, YouTube channel, excuse me. Uh, stop by the channel, subscribe, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media. 
and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified as new content drops. And don't forget the contest. You will find the link to the contest in this episode's show notes, as well as the one from Thursday. So you can enter your name for a chance to win the Go Groove camera backpack that the show will be giving away in October. The contest runs for a total of 60 days altogether before the winner will be announced. And that is going to wrap up today's episode. I will see you all again on Thursday.